Radio Mano Papachango. Dr. Christopher Ryan, and I use the term doctor advisedly uh, the way Hunter S. Thompson used it. Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. He knew it was a fucking joke, and so do I. I'm not a real doctor, and I don't even play a doctor on TV, but I have a PhD in psychology from a school that let me study from Spain, so what the hell? I uh, did an interview the other day with a guy who looked me up on Wikipedia, something I haven't done in a long time. That's how you know you're really famous, when you don't even bother to look at your damn Wikipedia page anymore. I don't know. Anyway, uh, he looked at the Wikipedia page and apparently, uh, well, I, I confirmed it, my, um, my porn award has already been included in my profile on Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. I uh, early in my novice days, I tried to correct a few things <clears throat> on the Wikipedia page. I think it was for Sex at Dawn. I, I think I didn't even have a Wikipedia page last time I looked. Maybe that's why I wasn't checking it. But there was a Sex at Dawn page, and of course, it was very contentious. You know, all the uh, the haters were were getting some of their hate into the Wikipedia thing. So I tried to. Um, you know, make some corrections and additions. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't trying to erase anything or deny anything. I just, you know, because there was all the, the tone of the page, which I think it still is, is basically like, you know, experts think sex at dawn is complete bullshit. Um, and I was just trying to say, well, not all experts. I mean, Franz Duval gave it a, a great blurb. Uh, there have been some fantastic reviews from sexologists, from various uh, evolutionary theorists, and you know, including some of the the most prominent people in the field. And the book won some significant scientific awards from the largest uh, sexual research organization in the United States, for example. So I just wanted to add a little balance. And oh my God, there was. I opened a can of whoop-ass on myself. Do not try to adjust your own Wikipedia page, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know why, but um, apparently that's considered uh, a great sin in the modern world. So anyway, it's out of my hands. Uh, I don't know. They'll say what they want to say. Speaking of saying what you want to say, I've decided that the introductions to the normal episodes of this podcast sometimes get too long. I get emails from some people saying, dude, they're so long. I get emails from other people saying, I don't give a shit. I love it. Just you know, talk as much as you want. So what I've decided to do is to make standalone episodes every once in a while um, where I'll answer some reader emails. Uh, Casilda has convinced me that this is a worthwhile thing to do. Uh, I I kind of feel uh, torn about it. As you know, I'm not real comfortable giving people advice, especially people I don't know. On the other hand, she makes the point that there is a value to my um, being 20 or 30 years older than a lot of you and having live the sort of life I've lived, I have perspective that may be valuable um, to some of you. And I leave that totally up to you, okay? Those of you who listen to this and say, I don't give a fuck what that guy has to say about blah, 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 fine. Don't listen to these. I get it. I'm not sure I'd listen to them either. either. So that's why I'm making them standalone episodes. They'll be easily identifiable, like the Toma and the Soma and all these other things. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to call this. I haven't even thought of it. It has to be something with OMA. But um, anyway, this will be the first of possibly a continuing series. If you like it and I like it, I'll keep doing it every once in a while. But uh, I do get some interesting emails. Um, and at this point, I've got an assistant who 
screens all the stuff that comes in through the website because it's just too much for me to deal with. And she forwards along to me um, stuff that seems interesting. All the things that come from readers, I do see eventually. So if you send me something, rest assured, I see it. I appreciate it. Um, especially, you know, I get uh, quite a few emails thanking me and, and explaining that uh, this podcast or the book has been helpful in some way in your life. And I really appreciate those. And I do see those, even though uh, I don't have time to answer them all. But I want you to know I see them and I appreciate them. Speaking of appreciation, those of you who support the podcast through Fund What You Love, there are bonus material kind of things. That, um, you know, when I set that up, uh, Danny encouraged me to, you know, have uh, incentives. So, you know, if you're giving 10 bucks a month, you get a T-shirt or a signed copy of Sex at Dawn or something or other. Um, I don't keep track of those, and the site doesn't have any sort of automatic alert setting. So if I owe you something, if you want a shirt, you do a signed book or whatever the hell it was, send me an email through the website, chrisryanphd.com, and I'll make sure mom sends you whatever it is that we owe you. Um, but don't wait for us to notice because we're running a, a real uh, shoestring operation out of the garage. So there's no, uh, there's no team of analysts standing by to, uh, to alert us to these things. So let us know if we owe you something and mom will get it out to you right away. As you know, if you follow me on Instagram or Twitter, I've just returned from a 10-day safari. Returned. Uh, I've returned to Cape Town. The safari started in Windhoek, Namibia. Um, went through part of Namibia into Botswana. Uh, then we went to the Okavanga Delta or Okavango. I can't remember. I never remember how to say that word. Uh, anyway, it's uh, pretty interesting uh, spot. Then we went uh, up along that river, back into Namibia, cruised along for a while, and then ended at uh, Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. Interesting, interesting trip. Um, I don't know. I'm torn. Uh, the company we did it with is Wild Dog Safaris. We, I, I went alone. Cassie was in Mozambique with her family. Um, and I'm in the middle of a bit of a mess with them, so I can't really say whether I would recommend their service or not. <clears throat> I really like the guide, Willem. Willem, uh, you'll hear an episode that I recorded with him at some point. Uh, but the people in the office fucked up the dates. They told me the wrong date. So my ticket back to Cape Town... Uh, couldn't be used because they gave me the wrong date. So the day I was supposed to fly out, I wasn't even in the city. So then I had to scramble, find another ticket from Vic Falls instead of um, Windhoek, where I thought I would be. Lost the price of the first ticket. Uh, spent two days when I was supposed to be relaxing on a safari, trying to figure shit out on my phone with the terrible Wi-Fi at some lodge in the middle of nowhere. So it's kind of a major fuck up. And thus far, they haven't um, refunded the price of my ticket. Uh, and it ended up costing me like $400 extra. So I'm not asking them to pay all that, although really they should. Uh, but I think they should at least pay me for the ticket I lost. And not to mention the fact that the ticket I had to buy cost twice as much as the ticket I lost. So really, they should pay for the ticket I had to buy. But anyway, I'm sort of in the middle of all that right now. So I'll let you know how that resolves. If they're incredibly cool about it and pay it all back, then I'm going to be super enthusiastic. If they fuck me over, then I won't be very enthusiastic. But I'll give you an update on that when I do the Villem episode. Uh, we're waiting because the boss won't be in till the Wednesday. I don't know what the fuck this, you know, it's one of those delay stories. Uh, as far as the um, safari goes, eh, a lot of driving, a lot of, you know, 
driving down a highway and there's not a lot of it's not like you're driving down the highway looking at elephants and you know lions um you're looking at donkeys and dogs occasionally and villages with thatched huts which are you know interesting the first 10 15 times you see it and then it that becomes pretty um normal we went to um um what's it called Kruger, Kruger Park in, in South Africa a few years ago, just for a day. And man, we saw more animals in that day than I saw on this 10-day safari. So if you're thinking about coming to Africa and your purpose is to see nature, see animals, see elephants and lions and stuff in the wild, uh, at this point, I would recommend Kruger Park. Uh, very highly. Uh, that was amazing. And, you know, we could just drive through ourselves. So you could sort of pick which part of the park you want to go to and you can stop where you want to stop. And uh, you can't get out of the car. I would not recommend getting out of the car, but you can. Uh, it's a different kind of experience than being in a in a bus with a bunch of people you don't really know. Um, so that's the safari. Now, on the trip, I read finally a book that it seems like everybody I know has read The Four-Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss. Um, I'd been sort of resistant to the book because from a distance, Tim Ferriss strikes me as uh, – how can I say this? Um, obviously, he's a very smart guy, very energetic, very focused but there's something of the the all-American snake oil salesman self-promoting huckster about him that puts me off. And I say this in the knowledge that some people see me that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, particularly uh, probably my friends in Spain. Um, you know, because I do. I, I spend a lot of time online. I'm you know, doing interviews all the time. I'm, you know, keeping my name out there. Uh, and the purpose is to sell books, of course, right? Uh, so, yeah, I'm kind of a self-promoting huckster as well. So maybe it takes one to know one. I don't know. But in any case, uh, that's why I hadn't read the book till now. And then I started reading the book on these long drives through Africa, which is an inter interesting juxtaposition, by the way. And I, I saw that a lot of the book, especially the beginning, like the first third or so, is about um, designing your life in a way that is completely congruent with my own sense of, of what's valuable in life. In other words, the first part of the book, he's talking about how the rest of the book is going to be showing you how to set up these structures that bring you passive income uh, so that you can basically retire now. And I've been for years, I've been joking that I retired as soon as I got out of college and I haven't started work yet. Um, and, you know, so it sort of fits in with the vision of life that uh, that Tim Ferriss is explaining in that book, which is enjoy it. Enjoy it now. There's no reason to work 30, 40, 50 years and then hope you get a year or two of retirement to enjoy shit when your fucking knees hurt and you, you got arthritis in your fingers. You're not going to go on a goddamn safari in Africa at that point, are you? And you're sure as hell not going to go trekking in Nepal or, you know, have adventures in, in Indonesia. So his basic thesis is very well taken. Uh, and... You know, the way I did it was by working a little bit and then taking that money and stretching it out as far as I could. And, uh, you know, and then when the money ran out, I found I went back home and got another job or I found a job on the road or, you know, whatever. And, and you know, I was sort of reading the book. I was thinking like, fuck, I could have written this book. You know, this is my life. This is I was always finding ways to maximize quality of life and minimize expense. So, you know, one of the the stories is, you know, when I met Casilda, she was a, a doctor working in Portugal 60 hours a week. She had a private practice. She was working in a mental uh, hospital. You know, she's a doctor. She's got two medical specializations. She was just fucking, you know, really working hard. And I was working about 12 hours a week 
in Barcelona teaching English to doctors and doing some medical translation uh, with, you know, very little money. But I was living in a mansion with flowers and a rose garden and a swimming pool and gorgeous fashion models wandering around all over the place and riding around Barcelona on my BMW motorcycle. And, you know, my quality of life was fantastic. And meanwhile, Cassie was living in an apartment with bare bulbs hanging from cables. And, you know, she hadn't even really moved into the place in the six years she'd lived there because she always thought, you know, soon I'm going to find a place I really like and move out of here. Um, so she was sort of on a holding pattern. So when we got together, it was all about how, look, I can teach you how to work a lot less and have a much better quality of life. And you can teach me how to get some shit done finally because, you know, I was stuck working on my Ph.D. and not getting it done. And, you know, and and uh, we can help each other. And I think that's, you know, aside from attraction and liking the same music and all that kind of stuff, that's an important part of of teams that, you know, you bring something that I'm missing and I bring something you're missing. And so together we're stronger than either of us could be alone. Um, now, I have learned some lessons from Casilda as, you know, I got a book written. Uh, I got my Ph.D. done. She still is not really relaxing. So I'm not – maybe she's a better teacher than I am. I'm not sure. But um, why the fuck am I talking about this? Oh, Tim Ferriss. So I I definitely resonate with that message. Um but then he gets into the business stuff and the ruthlessness of, you know, don't answer emails from strangers. Don't take calls from any number you don't recognize. You have to set up these virtual assistants that are going to screen this and that. It sets up all these very tight uh, mechanisms for freeing you from your job or from whatever business you set up. And, um, yeah, I, I think that kind of stuff can be necessary, and, and I, see, I see what he's getting at. But I did kind of start to feel like, eh, I don't know that I trust this guy. And I hope I meet him someday, so I want to be careful what I say. I don't. I have friends who are friends of his. In fact, he and I have slept in the same bed within 24 hours of each other. How's that for a coincidence? Um, he was visiting. I didn't know this, but uh, Cassie and I went to visit um, Andrew Weil, the the doctor um, who was, I think, one of the first episodes of this podcast. Went to visit him up in his summer place in, in British Columbia. And um, the first night we were there, and he said, oh, yeah, Tim, have you heard of Tim Ferriss? I said, yeah. He said, oh, he was here yesterday, just left this morning, and you know, he was staying in the guest house. So, yeah, so Tim and I have slept in the same bed, not together. Uh, t I should say Tim and Cassie and I, we sort of had a, a three-way, uh, though, though Tim wasn't aware of it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he's, he's very American, and, and that kind of puts me off a little bit. That that sort of ruthless business is business, you know, um, get your eight to 12 time value markup and, you know, increase the value of this by doing that and blah, 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 business. Blah, blah. Uh, I just can't give enough of a shit to to be into it that much. So anyway, four hour work week kind of recommended, I guess. But, you know, the one thing that that gets me about guys like Tim Ferriss is – and I have the same feeling about people who do um, financial management, asset management, all that kind of thing. Like if you're so good at making money, why do you want me to pay you to make money? Like why don't you have enough money? And when I look at Tim Ferriss and you know, I read this and you know, the book's all about like – you know. Happiness isn't about how much you own. It's not about how much money you have. It's about freedom. It's about a freedom to enjoy life and, and move to new places when you want to move. And, you know, it's not about having airplanes and cars and big houses and all that. It's about 
autonomy and self-actualization, et cetera. And yeah, I, yeah, I'm down with that. But then, you know, that book sold probably over a million copies. It sold a lot of fucking copies. And if he's getting two, three bucks per book, whatever it is, then he's got his speaking fees. Then he's got, you know, TV stuff and all that. Then why is there the four-hour body? Why is there the four-hour cook? Why is there the four-hour fucking empire? He writes a book about enough is enough. Then why isn't it enough for you, Tim? Why are you still running so hard? Now, I imagine his answer would be, I enjoy it. I like writing best-selling books. I like being famous. I like, you know, whatever, running my empire. And the problem I have with that is that running an empire is a fucking pain in the ass. I don't give a shit what empire it is. I don't care if it's the empire of building schools for underprivileged children in Nepal. It's still a pain in the ass. It's a pain in the ass dealing with all this stuff. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just a pain in the ass for me because of the way my personality is structured. But I, what I feel is like ambition should not be a permanent condition. Healthy ambition should be the ambition to get enough and then stop. And he says it in the book. He says, before you start trying to make money and whatever, pick a number. Find Pick a number now. Figure it out. How much do you need? So if you've got, let's say you've got $5 million in the bank and you conservatively, very conservatively, you can get a return of 5% on that per year um, after taxes, that's $250,000 a year income on that money. Is that enough? If it's not enough, you're fucked, okay? That should be five times enough for most people. And even if you've got kids, you're going to college, whatever bullshit, a quarter of a million dollars a year after taxes, that's got to be enough for you. If it's not enough, you need to like figure shit out because that's plenty. So $5 million. Now, I have no doubt that Tim Ferriss has a net worth or of $5 million or more. So why is he still working? Because he's trapped in ambition, is my guess. He's trapped in running on the wheel that he is teaching people how to get off. So Tim has never invited me on his podcast, and I doubt he would ever be on mine. But if we ever have a conversation, that's what I would want to talk about. Like, you know, if you see through ambition, why are you still running? Now, if you're asking me that question, it's because I do not have $5 million in the bank. <laughs> not by a fucking long shot. Uh, okay, so let's get to some of your letters. I think that covers my Tim Ferriss rant. Uh, you know, as always, thanks to you, those of you who buy stuff uh, on Amazon through the website. That's become uh, an important source of funding for the podcast. I think we're pulling in six or seven hundred thousand dollars a month from. I'm just kidding. No, we're not. Uh, I think it's like a thousand bucks a month or something. So it's it's cool. It's it's very helpful. Um, but it ain't Tim Ferriss money. So. Uh, yeah, thanks for doing that. Now, to be clear, I'm not asking anyone to sign up for Amazon. Uh, I've, I've discussed this in other episodes. I'm ambivalent about the effect of Amazon on the world. I don't know if it'll be a net positive or a net loss, but I buy shit on Amazon. If you buy shit on Amazon, too, well, you might as well go through the website and 5 to 7% of whatever you spend will support the podcast, and it comes out of Amazon's money, not yours. So... It's kind of a win-win as far as I'm concerned. And uh, Amazon seems to like it. It's their program, so they're getting something out of it as well. So uh, I guess that makes it a win-win-win. A win cubed. So this only applies to people in the U.S., by the way. Sometimes I get emails from people in Europe or Canada saying, hey, man, how can I do this? It doesn't seem to work on your website. No, it doesn't because um, Amazon considers 
me to be, um, what's the word, a freelance or something, an independent contractor. So they send tax information to me at the end of the year. So I need to be, um, you know, a, a tax paying resident of the country in which this happens. So since I don't live in Canada and uh, it doesn't, there's no way to set it up in Europe, this only applies to, to stuff you order through Amazon.com in the U.S. Okay, let's get to some of your letters. Uh, here's one. Let's see. 23-year-old guy. Oh, yeah. Okay, I remember this one. And he's living in Australia. Now, his friend and, he and his friend had planned um, to travel around the world, film the whole excursion, uh, busking, making animations on the way. Super excited about this. But... Something has dampened the spirit of the occasion, he says. I've fallen in love for the first time with a woman from the city I'm living in. Uh, I was warned, my friend warned me not to get too involved, as we always knew that we were about to leave. But I couldn't control the charge, the inexorable charge toward love, he says. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So essentially, he's asking me, like, what should I do? I'm in love with this girl. It's, it, I think it was the first time he's been in love, but I've got this plan with my friend to travel around the world. And, you know, we've been talking about this for years. So I actually wrote back to this guy, and I'll read you what I said. I said, whatever worldly wisdom I have on this issue, issue has led me to conclude that what we call love is something we generate in ourselves and then project on other people, like a light show. This isn't to say that the woman you love isn't lovely. I'm sure she is, but so are millions of other women. What you're feeling is something that comes from inside yourself, not from her. So your sense that you'll lose this feeling if you lose contact with her isn't accurate. Once you understand that it isn't really coming from her anyway, be loving and you'll find love all over the place in many different forms. Stay trapped in the culturally enforced delusion that love is something you find in other people, and you'll be at the mercy of chance encounters and lose control of your own life. I write this in the full knowledge that it probably makes no sense at all to you, just as it wouldn't have made sense to me when I was 23. All right, now let's unpack that a little bit, because some of that might not make sense. My point is... First of all, the idea that you find your soulmate when you're 23, forget about it, okay? You've got lots of soulmates. Your soul is multifaceted. It's not a a lock that can only accommodate one key. Who you are is a very, very complex thing that is always changing, always flowing, always, always taking on different shapes, and... Who you love has far more to do with who you are than who they are. What we feel, what we experience as love is really a a reaction that happens inside us based upon who we consider ourselves to be, what we consider to be our weaknesses, our absences, things that, that, that we're missing. And we look out, kind of like what I was saying about Casilda and me. You know, I felt at the time when I met her that I was missing ap- uh, discipline. I was missing the sort of, mm, you know, follow through and, and, and uh, work, you know, get something important done. And I met her, and here's this woman who's doing really important work. She's saving people's lives. She's doing incredibly valuable stuff. And I'm just a fuck off teaching English in Barcelona, you know, having lots of fun. So there was a a substantive, is there a word? Substantiveness, a substance to her life that I felt was missing in my own. And that was one of the things that attracted me to her. Now, yes, that is her. And that was her life. That, That was her character. But the reaction was coming from where I felt I was in my life. Now, the thing is, as you get older, you're changing less and less um, because you're, you are who you are. You're just an older version of who you are. I've talked about this before. I, you know, I feel like the person I was when I was 
15 is extremely different from the person I was when I was 25. Um, there's Yeah, there's some sort of core identity. There's some observer uh, element that was watching it. And that observer, and this is the Buddhist principle of, of who you really are, is, is that entity that's watching you live your life. That stays the same, but, but I was a very different person at the beginning of that 10-year period and at the end of that 10-year period. But 25 to 30, not a big difference. 30 to 40, really not that big. 40 to 50, uh, almost nothing. Uh, and it's not to say you're not growing. You're still growing. You're still adding. But the structure's set. You know, it's almost like you build a house and the house gets done somewhere around 30 maybe. And then you start furnishing it. But the house isn't going to change anymore. You can move shit around in the living room. You can decide, you know, you're going to sleep in that bedroom instead of this bedroom or you're going to sleep out on the terrace or whatever. But the house is done. Now it's about living in that house. So that's my experience of aging. And the thing about what we're calling love here is that when you're young, a lot of this experience of love, and, and I think the reason it's so intense and so um, the gravitational pull is so incredible, is that it's about getting you to where you want to be, or it's about filling a hole that you feel in yourself. And the problem is that other people can't really do that. Other people can't really fill those holes. And we surrender our autonomy in order to, to chase someone around. And, but if you catch them, you'll find that that's not, that it isn't what you wanted. It isn't what you needed. You thought it was, but it wasn't. So, you know, my feeling with this guy is like, God damn, dude, you've got this trip planned. You've been planning it for years with one of your best friends. And you're going to drop it all because you met a woman in Adelaide or, or Melbourne or wherever the hell it was. That woman is very unlikely to still be in your life two or three years from now. Uh, sad but true. Uh, maybe it's not sad because, you know, if you stay with the person you meet when you're in your early 20s, well, game over, right? I mean, maybe it's great. Good for you. Maybe you won the game, but still game over. Uh, but chances are good that your best buddy is going to be in your life 10, 20 years from now. And the chances are good that if you guys don't do this trip, you're going to regret it far more than you're going to regret a woman you met on the road and you could have stayed and you didn't. Because the other thing is, if it's real, if it's really important, you know, she'll be happy to hear from you a year from now. So that's my advice. And I, I certainly don't mean this to be demeaning to women. It, it goes the other way, too. Don't drop your plans just because you met some guy. Guys come and go. I'll tell you what, I, I can't, I mean, it would take me some serious time to sit down and remember the names of women I met in my early 20s that I felt like, fuck, I got to, I got to re, you know, rethink everything. And, you know, maybe I should cancel that trip and stay with her. I don't remember their names now. Thank God I didn't cancel the trips. All right. Here's another one. All right. Yeah. Hello, Chris. Listen to your podcast with Mark Manson, and it compelled me to write to you. I'm a man in my mid-20s. I have no sexual outlet, basically, nor romantic, nor nurturing. Women are either afraid of me or I just can't communicate with them. This makes me feel very alone, regardless to say. I think our civilization should offer some kind of pairing centers or teach timid men how to create relationships or something. All I know is that growing up unable to express and receive love has made me feel broken inside. I don't ask for much, only to touch and be touched. Why does the society want to produce broken individuals? Is sex that much of a taboo that it would prevent it from helping someone? 
Yeah. Yeah. Look, I uh, I think that the pain that this guy is expressing is far more widespread than we acknowledge and and far more damaging both on an individual level and on a cultural level and and this is this is tricky to talk about because i think it is one of those things where men and women have vastly different experiences and it can sound as if I'm um, minimizing or, or dismissing the pain of young women. And so let me be very clear that I don't mean to do that at all, and I don't, I don't believe that at all. I think that young women are going through and facing challenges that young men don't face generally that are every bit as damaging and difficult um, so, uh, but I'm not really qualified to speak on those very well because I've never been a young woman, obviously. But I have been a young man and I have tasted the bitter loneliness that this guy's talking about and the shame. And I've wondered about these questions that he's wondering about. Like, what's in it for society to create this much unhappiness? You know, and, and all I have to go on is is a few sentences here, but he sounds like a thoughtful and kind person. The problem is that when you're that alone, you start to feel that there's a reason that you're that alone. And so you start to feel shame. There's something wrong with me. And that shame as most shame does, can quickly curdle into anger. And so then you start to hate people. You hate men who are more comfortable with women. You hate women because they're, they refuse to love you, because they make you feel so horrible and ugly about yourself. You hate other cultures because you've got all this anger and hate inside you, and it's got to go somewhere. So you hate black people, you hate white people, you hate Muslims, you hate Christians. And this gets into his question, why would a culture want this? A guy named James Prescott was interested in this question, and he looked at all the societies uh, in the anthropological data bank in which there was uh, sufficient information to do a meta-analysis. And what he wanted to see is, is there a correlation between the level of violence within a society and the level of body contact between mother and infant and um, between children and adolescents who are exploring their sexuality. And his hypothesis was that the lack of touch in a society is correlated inversely with the level of violence. And he found this to be true of, I believe it was 26 of the 27 societies he studied. So almost without exception, societies in which um, mothers and infants had uh, the lowest level of contact, like, for example, our society, in which mothers typically don't carry kids around all day. In Africa, where I am, you see kids strapped to their mother's backs as long as they want to be. Breastfeeding as long as they want to, three, four years sometimes. Uh, now, what does that do? That creates a sense of security in that child. And also the way society is structured in Africa and in, in most uh, hunter-gatherer areas and village societies around the world, kids are seen as community kids. They're not 
private property of that mother and that father. And, you know, I go to the States and I'm sitting in a park and a little kid comes over and I might start talking to the kid and we're laughing. And then I see people looking at me like I'm a fucking predator. Like I'm going to drag that kid in the bushes and rape and murder it. It's fucking crazy. But that's the way America is. You don't talk to other people's kids. You don't touch other people's kids. You sure as fuck don't discipline other people's kids. And if someone's kid is crying, you don't pick it up and comfort it. Because you're a fucking sexual predator in America if you do stuff like that. That's a sick society right there. But anyway, what Prescott found was that yeah, the societies in which the, the mother-infant contact was lowest and in which teen, you know, adolescent sexual experimentation was forbidden were the societies in which violence was highest. And not only within the society, but with uh, between societies. So those are also the societies most likely to be at war with the societies around them. Now, look at what's going on in the world right now. The biggest sources of conflict, the biggest sources of death and destruction are the United States, which is, I'm sorry, a highly sexually repressed, shame-based, anti-pleasure society, and radical Islam, which is even worse. You have sex before you're married, you get fucking whipped in public or killed if you're the woman. Really. And so what do we find? We find that they have a very large supply of angry, frustrated, alienated, violent young men, which is exactly what they need to expand their empire. Right? Those are the guys who join the fucking army. Those are the guys who go on jihad. And it's no mistake that the society, the United States, every fucking sporting event, you know, they fly over the stadium and everyone stands there saluting and we support the troops and all this romanticism around the military, all the movies. Oh, baby, I'll be here when you get home. Oh, yeah, all that stuff wrapped up in military, all that love and sex wrapped up in the military, hero worship, right? Everybody wants to fuck a soldier. Same thing on the other side. The jihadis, what do they get if they blow themselves up? Oh, they get 27 fucking virgins. Of course they do. Yeah, so your life here is frustrating, you're lonely, you don't get any touch, you're, you're starved for contact with other people, but hey man, do what we tell you and oh, you're going to be in a fucking orgy. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's, uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, the question was, you know, what does, why does society want to produce broken individuals? Because broken individuals do what they're told. Because you create individuals that are missing, that are craving something, and then you can give them little taste of it and get them to do whatever you want. That's the way civilization works. It creates broken people and promises a fix. And the fix is either temporary or illusory. It's either, you know, it's consumerism. Oh, you're unhappy. Well, you'll be happy if you buy this. Oh, there's no, you don't have any pussy in your life. Oh, well, hey, women will love you if you wear this, if you put this in your hair, if you be, read this book, if you buy this car, if you get this job, if you make a certain amount of money, you buy this house, you go to war, come home a hero, whatever it is, then women will love you and you'll be happy, except you won't. So then we've got some pills for you. They'll make you happy, except they won't. They'll just make the sadness harder to feel. Let's move on before I start weeping. Um, oh, here's a good one. This is from a woman. So I found out that my husband of, mm, yeah, a lot of over 20 years, fucked some stupid fucking cunt bitch. 
I can't even stand to look at him, look at him, let alone be in his presence, so all our communication has been via text. We finally had a face-to-face after a week of me knowing about this. After I'm done screaming and yelling, I said, come here, just make me feel good, and we had sex, and it was really fucking good. Then I cried when it was over. What the fuck is going on? How does that fit into human sexual evolution? <laughs> Yeah. I'm so confused. I literally am repulsed by him and don't yet know if I'm letting him back home, but I'm initiating sex with him. And it's not just that. I'm fucking horny and masturbating, too. I recently found out that I have autoimmune disorder and haven't been well for a long time. I haven't felt horny for years. I've tried every aphrodisiac tea there is and nothing. But I found out my husband is a lying, cheating piece of fucking shit, and I'm suddenly horny as hell. What the fuck? (laughs) Yeah, what the fuck? Uh, Okay, so this makes me think of two things. First of all, you've been married a long time. I don't want to say how long. I don't want any identifying factors, but over 20 years. So being married to someone that long, living with someone that long— They become family. They become siblings. They're not lovers. It's very hard, if not impossible, to be sexy when you live with someone. Sexy is a part-time gig. It's not a full-time job. You can't do it full-time. So if you're going to live with someone, you have to understand that you're going to become brother and sister. Or if you're gay, brother and brother, or sister and sister, you're not going to be hot, horny, I want to fuck you lovers for years. Now, maybe five years, but not 20 years. So you either have to acknowledge that and accept it and just sort of fade out, you know, have your sex life fade out, or... You have to build in separations. You spend several months a year apart or uh, you live in separate apartments or what many people do is they sort of manufacture crises so that they can fight and feel emotionally separate and then come back together again and have that amazing makeup sex. There are lots of ways that people deal with these things, some more conscious than others, some more destructive than others. But the fact is that if you're going to live together over a long period of time, sexual passion is going to fade away. Just deal with it because that's – I mean, if you've read Sex at Dawn, Dawn, you'll see that that's a big part of the the discussion, uh, why that happens. And it happens because of the sort of creature that Homo sapiens is. So – There's really no way that I know of getting around that. You know, hey, what's our society do? It doesn't change the structure of marriage. It says, take Viagra. Okay, here's the thing. Viagra gives you a hard-on, but it doesn't make you want to fuck somebody. It makes you able to fuck somebody. Viagra is the male equivalent of lube, of pussy lube. So... Yeah, you can put lube on your pussy and and get fucked and, like, it won't hurt. But it doesn't make you want to fuck that guy, right? It doesn't make your pussy wet. It makes your pussy lubed. It's different. Makes your dick hard. Doesn't make you want to fuck that person. And the problem is that is not an indication that there's that that person's not fuckable. It's not an indication that that person's not beautiful and sexy and wonderful or that you're a bad guy or whatever or your marriage is fucked up. None of that's true. It's an indication of the fact that you're a homo sapien who's been dealing with the same sexual partner for a long time and you've lost interest. Nobody's fault. That's just the nature of the beast. So here's a situation where this woman... She's been married to this guy for a long time, and she finds out he's fucking around behind her back, and it makes her hate him. It makes her pissed off. It makes her feel betrayed, all these things that we would expect her to feel. But then it also makes her horny and want to fuck this guy, and she's confused by it. Well, the reason she wants to fuck this guy is that for the first time in a long time, she sees him as a sexual being. 
And this is what happens often in these situations. And this is one of the things that makes them so painful and so difficult that people feel conflicting reactions. On the one side, they feel all that anger and hatred and betrayal and et cetera. And on the other side, they feel like, why do I want to fuck this person again? And guys feel this too. You know, there's, in fact, there's, there's research showing that when men haven't been with their partner for a while, a few days, a few weeks, when they see them again, they, uh, the sex is much more um, vigorous, like the thrusting is much deeper and harder and all that. And also the composition of their semen changes. There are far more sperm cells. Now, you might say, oh, yeah, well, that's because the guy hasn't gotten laid in a few days or a week or whatever. But it doesn't matter if he's getting laid every day, if he jerks off every day. It's not a physiological thing. It's an evolved response that he is not even consciously aware of, but that his body is saying, okay, I haven't been with her for a while. She may have been with other guys, so I'm going to flood her with my own sperm cells so that if she gets pregnant, it's more likely to be with my sperm than with the sperm of one of these guys she may have been fucking while I was gone. That's at least the hypothesis. And it seems the most logical hypothesis to me fits into the whole sperm competition paradigm of human evolution, which I think makes the most sense, obviously. And so there are a lot of things going on subconsciously. A woman's probably much more likely to have an orgasm with this guy as well if she loves this guy, if this is really the guy she wants to be with, because female orgasm increases the chance of conception with the guy she comes with. So she could have sex with three or four guys and then come with him and his sperm is more likely to impregnate her. If you want details on that, read Sex at Dawn. Um, so that's what's happening here. She's seeing him as a sexual being, A, for the first time. You know, he's maybe he's a really good looking guy. Maybe he's really good in bed. Maybe he's a catch. But she forgot all that. She hasn't been thinking about that because he's just been the husband who farts and drinks beer and picks his nose and watches too much TV and forgets to take the garbage out. And, you know, you start to see people that way when you live with them. So for the first time in a long time, she's looking at him from another perspective. So that's opened up her, her sexual response to him. The other thing that's happening is she's in fear of losing him. And that can be a real tonic to a relationship. That can make you start to look at yourself and say, shit, what am I doing? Am I, am I making this person happy? Am I working as hard as I should be to keep this person in my life? It makes you reassess the value of your relationship. And if it's a relationship you want to hold on to, that can be uh, a real turbo boost to the sexual charge. So I don't know. Um, I don't know what's happened with her. If you're listening to this and you recognize that I'm talking about you, drop me another email. Let me know how it's going. I hope it's going well, uh, and I hope you enjoy the the makeup sex and the get back together sex. If in fact you get back together, and if you don't, um, I hope you're doing okay. So let's see. Moving on to the next email. Uh, okay. I want to overthrow the government in Jamaica. I know it sounds crazy, but drastic times call for drastic measures. I want a true democracy where everyone gets uh, an iPad-like device paid for by taxation, and they can vote on it. There will be government-run news everyone receives to educate our citizens. I want Wi-Fi to be everywhere. Okay, so far, so good. Uh, yeah, hemp will pay for the revolution. Of course it will. I don't know if you've read The Emperor Wears No Clothes or not, but hemp can replace just about everything. Yes, I have read The Emperor Wears No Clothes. Highly recommended, by the way, if for those of you who haven't read it, it's, it's a good book. The author's name is Jack Herrer, A-T-R-E-R. -E you may recognize his name because there's a very famous strain of marijuana named after him. He's one of the sort of founding fathers of the intellectual marijuana society. 
Um, and uh, yeah, it's a great book. Like all this information I didn't know, like uh, that the sails on sailing ships and the caulking between the planks of wood were all made out of hemp. All the rope, everything was made out of hemp because hemp has uh, an oil that resists seawater. And uh, it's so hemp was an essential element in the navies of the 19th century, 18, earlier, you know, 15th century on. And, um, and in fact, I believe that's the book where I learned that the reason Napoleon invaded Russia was to take control of the hemp fields of the Ukraine. Because without that hemp, the, the French Navy would uh, would would disintegrate. The sails would fall apart. The rope would fall apart. And I think it, Russia made a deal, some sort of pact with England not to sell any of their hemp to France. So it's kind of like, you know, if the Middle East stopped selling oil to the U.S., the U.S. would go in and, you know, take over. Well, that's exactly what they've done. So oil is essential to the modern Navy as hemp was to the navies of earlier centuries. Anyway, Jack Herrera, yeah, great book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes. Uh, anyway, so this guy wants to, um, yeah, wants to create a new world based on hemp in Jamaica. I'm not asking for money. I'm just wondering if you could give me your opinion and criticism. Yeah, well, my opinion is that um, you might want to start with a smaller project, uh, overthrowing the government of Jamaica and setting up a hemp-based utopia. Sounds great, um, but you might want to you know, start by changing a law in your town or something and uh, you know, start small. Because the thing about ideas like this is that it's important, I think, to demonstrate the feasibility of something on a local level and then publicize that and watch the world change. So an example of that would be Portugal. Portugal changed their drug laws 15 years ago, uh, made all drugs, um, they decriminalized all drugs. And what has happened? Uh, addiction rates have dropped precipitously. Uh, AIDS transmission rates have dropped precipitously. Um, petty crime, breaking and entering, robberies, all down. All. So every effect of this decriminalization of drugs, and I'm talking about all drugs, heroin down to marijuana, uh, has been extremely positive, <clears throat> excuse me, extremely positive, save money, save lives, etc. If you haven't read about this, you might want to write to CNN and ask why. Uh, because this is the kind of thing that changes the world. People look at this, they see what's happened in Colorado with the legalization of marijuana. Taxes are up, drunk driving is down, opioid addiction is down, overdose deaths are down, petty crime is down. You know, you can't argue with that. I'm old enough to remember that, you know, the whole Reagan revolution was largely about creating fear that drugs were destroying America, especially marijuana. And, and uh, it was destroying America. And we have to throw people in prison. We have to get tough on crime. And so you have this explosion of the prison population in the United States. And what the fuck? Did things get better? Pfft, arguable. I mean, some things might have gotten better, but they sure as fuck didn't get better for the people and the families of those people who were thrown into prison for having some a fucking ounce of marijuana. And now you look at Colorado, you look at California, you look at Oregon, you look at Washington, and the unthinkable has happened. You can walk into a store and buy weed. And of course, the societies are falling apart. California is dropped into the sea. Oregon is being overrun by, by gangs of feral hippies shooting and raping and pillaging. Right? Right? 
So that's what happened? Yeah, that's what happened, right? No, nothing happened. Nothing. Except good things. That's the way you change the world. Uh, there's an old adage, think globally, act locally. That makes sense. So you want to change the world, start in your town. Change things in your town. Start with yourself. Change things in your life. And then your town. And then your state. And then your country. And then the world. That's the only way it's going to work. Okay, last letter. Let's see. What's this one? Subject, hey, dude. Message, dearest Dr. Ryan. Hey, man. Okay, I'm writing to you because I know a lot of people email you when they're in their 20s and are looking for advice on what to do. So I thought I'd try to help you out and give you an easy reply. After college, I was a little lost trying to find something meaningful to do with my life. I was working at Best Buy, sucking the corporate wiener and just trying to get by. I got tired of it and was asking friends for advice on where to go and what to do. To make a long story short... A friend of mine invited me out to Glacier National Park in Montana to work for the summer. Best decision of my life. Now I work seasonal jobs between Glacier and Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Now I can easily get a job at any park in the country. I get about three months off work a year to travel, and I've met a ton of people from all over the world. There's a ton of young people from all over Europe, South America, and Asia who come to work for the national parks in America. There you go. I didn't know that. Not only have I met all kinds of unique people from different cultures, but I have friends I can meet up with and couches to crash on all over the world. So if a young guy or gal, there's a word you don't hear much anymore, gal, she's like a nice gal, asks you how to get started on the world travel route, maybe tell them to first apply for a summer gig in Yellowstone or the Tetons or come see me in Glacier. Yeah. By the way, the Grand Tetons, in French, that means big tits. And uh, there was, I remember reading years ago, there was this, uh, somebody sent uh, a prank letter to the National Park Service complaining uh, that they should change the name of Grand Teton National Park because they were offended by the fact that it meant big tits in French. <laughs> I've never been to the Big Tit National Park, but I should definitely go. Uh, the one drawback of seasonal work is how fleeting it can be. I met a wonderful young lady in Glacier this summer, and we dated for the season. Unfortunately, she got a job offer in Asheville and decided to settle down there, and I'm still trying to travel. So we decided to part ways. Each season is a good lesson in the importance of enjoying the present moment, because at the end of each summer, you never know who you'll see again. Yeah. That's good advice. That's very good advice. So there you have it. There's another way to for you youngsters out there who want to get out and see the world. Go get a gig at a national park this summer. And then you'll have friends all over the world and caches, couches you can crash on. I think I mentioned in an earlier episode I was hanging out uh, with some friends in San Francisco, some, some people in their 20s. And they were doing this organic farming thing around the world. Um, where you go and work on a farm in exchange for room and board, and you also learn a lot about farming. And then they were doing the same thing in Europe with um, the wine season. So there, I've, I did some of that with the salmon, obviously, in Alaska, which is also seasonal. So there are seasonal gigs around the world where, you know, when the wines are ripe, suddenly they need a whole lot of people. Uh, and they only need you as long as the the wine, the grapes are coming in and it's being processed. Then, So they have this sudden need for a large group of people and then, and then nothing. So those are the sorts of places where you can get gigs, you know, picking fruit, processing fish, um, and uh, apparently organic farming around South America. I've heard a lot of people doing it down there. And uh, in this, this park thing, you know, where they need a lot of people for the summer and then the season's over and... They don't need you anymore. So that's when you can go travel in, in Asia or whatever. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up. It's been an hour. Uh, thank you for listening. I, I hope this is useful for some of you. And uh, it just seems like an easier, more efficient way of, of responding to some of the interesting emails I get. I hope you find it useful. Let me know if you do or don't. And uh, I'll respond accordingly.
So that's it. I'll put, I don't know what song I'm going to put, but I'm going to put some funky song on here. So I hope you enjoy it. I'm going to sign off now and think about the song and I'll throw something up here that seems appropriate. Take it easy. Dream girl in Danville, just in this central time zone. I used to kill hours to meet her on time, and then lost one as well driving home. Mexican boy on Doheny, selling the map to stars' homes. Maybe he's homeless, and maybe they're gone, and the afternoon traffic rolls on. Driving the Jaguar's impressive But you can't watch it go by The Manhattan skyline is a sight to behold But probably best through New Jersey-based eyes It is what it is and that's all What are you going to do? Will some fool look up on a clear day And say that the sky's not a true enough blue? Never much rains, but it's pouring. Everything happens at once. Flat tires and light bulbs while picture frames fall from the wall where they've hung fine for months. It is what it is, and that's all. We lay down a mat by the door. With some fool rushing from a cloudburst and say, well, I'm soaked and I'm totally bored. There by the interstate, the duplex I call home Ain't quite the quietest place on earth to catch your breath Non-stop highway sound makes backyard picnics out to lunch Fact is my next door neighbor's fine, completely deaf Maybe you wish you'd had money Then you might think you could live Life is so brief you may think time a thief Better live for whatever it kills Wondering the future you worry Listen, somehow you'll get through Then you'll look backwards and long for the things that you'll find It's then too late to do It is what it is and that's all When are you going to see? Friends tell you true and your granddad did too But you won't take advice, it comes free what you want, you don't want it Not even glad while you eat Wait for your flight while the heavyweights fight And the planes try to land in the sleet It is what it is and that's all Birds can't row boats, baby blue Well, some fool sit stuck on the runway And say, hell, it's only me this happens to what it is and that's all it is what it is and that's all